I cannot swear to you that there is swearing on this show, but there might be. It's the kind of behavior I engage in. It's Tuesday, September 3rd, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hurricanes are like racism. Ooh, is this a Zen code? No, no, no. Hear me out. Remember a couple years ago, before the current guy got in the White House, when most of the public expression of racism was dog whistles, really quite subtle, and you'd always hear, you know, it's the subtle, quiet racism that's the most pernicious. And then douchebags and khakis with tiki torches show up in Charlottesville, and we realize, no, nah, you know what? It's the yelling out loud stuff. That really is the worst. Same with hurricanes. Because remember, last year, we were told, well, although we do categorize them by numbers according to wind speed, na na na, it's the storm surge that's the real problem. The greatest threat to loss of life during a hurricane it doesn't come from the wind, it comes from the water that the wind pushes ashore. This is something that we call storm surge. But now that there's Dorian with its earth-shattering, really air-shattering gusts, we have sentiment like this, as expressed by Georgia Governor Brian Kemp. This hurricane has shattered all-time records when you think about the wind speeds of 185 miles an hour yesterday afternoon, and it's certainly one of the most powerful we've ever seen in the Atlantic. Yeah, it turns out that ripping our ears off, that's kind of a problem, too. You know, it's all a problem. We do this, and by we, I mean we humans, but also that narrow slice of humanity that's the media. We all have the tendency to take the circumstance that's right in front of us and say, this one's the worst. When Harvey dumped 40 inches or so of rain on Houston, that was the worst. That was the most dangerous. And then we went without a Category 3 or above hurricane for years and years and years. And then we were told, well, forget Category 3 and 4 because that's about wind speed. And wind speed's not really the best way to measure them. You should look at the accumulated cyclone energy, the ACE. I liked it. I like saying ACE. Except now that the Bahamas is getting smacked in the face with a freight train of air, where's ACE Nation now? In truth... There is a logic to thinking of all sort of different ways to categorize and explain hurricanes, to explain their intensity, their potential for death. Wind speed, that's the easiest to measure, but like batting average in baseball, it doesn't mean it's the best indication. But also like batting average in baseball, when Ted Williams hit 400, you did have to tip your cap or be bowled over to pick two idioms which are respectively improbable and probable during a Category 5 hurricane. And so we should take into account the amount of rain, the amount of energy, the storm surge. It should all be considered. It should all be counted. It should all be understood. But I do, however, understand the imperatives of we humans and we in the media to look at that which is upon us and say, oh my God, it's never been worse. Because there is quite a case that the wind is not the most dangerous aspect of a hurricane. Only you won't hear that case being made today. On the show, one more aspect of hurricane coverage and how it relates to a certain fellow from the D.C. area who doesn't like his hair to be too mussed up. Why criticism of Donald Trump's golfing in the face of nature is mere bloviation. But first... It is a veritable salon of intellect, insight, and the free exchange of ideas. I speak, of course, of conservative talk radio. So Brian Rosenwald has looked at this institution, the institution that gave us megadittos, and he found that what the AM Yackers had to say in 2016 may have played a bigger role than you realized in the buoying 
of our shock jock in chief. Talk Radio's America, how an industry took over a political party that took over the United States. Up next, and I'll take my answers on the air. Brian Rosenwald is a first-time, long-time, a long-time observer of the American media scene, a first-time author of Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. Rather than read you a blurb on the back, I will read you an endorsement of this book. Quote, this guy gets it more than anybody that I've ever encountered writing either about talk radio in general or about this program. What program? The name of the man saying that quote, Rush Limbaugh. Hello, Brian. How are you? Congratulations on the endorsement. Thank you. It's great to be with you. I mean, is that, should I congratulate you? You want to get it right, but did you always want Rush Limbaugh complimenting you? Well, it's not something I ever expected, but yeah, I mean, I, I do see it as a compliment because he didn't say, look, this guy is endorsing our politics or anything like that. What he was saying is that that I get the, the business and that was a huge goal of this book and of this project was to, you know, yes, there are going to be political conclusions that and there's probably something in there for everyone left, right and center to hate. But, you know, if people in the business say, well, he understands it, he gets it, then that's sort of confirming to me that I got the story right. Right. And then I'm not leading my readers astray in any way that they can, you know, understand how this came to be and what impact it has from the book. So Rush Limbaugh goes national in the late 80s. Before that, I grew up in New York, and I remember when Rush was just local on WABC. Before him, there was a guy named Bob Grant who would end his show with, your influence counts, use it, get Gaddafi. He was talking about Gaddafi before Gaddafi was a household name. Before that, and I didn't know this guy, but I'd heard tale of Long John Neville, who was kind of a shock jock and maybe more of a angry conservative, but that wasn't his main shtick. What was the use? So what I'm saying is, if Rush Limbaugh was Elvis, there there was a Jerry Lee Lewis before him, there was a Bill Haley before him. What made Rush the transcendent comet that he was, I guess, to mix a Bill Haley metaphor? So Rush goes national in 1988. And what Rush does is, first of all, he breaks number one rule among radio executives at the time, which is that for talk radio to work, it's got to be local. You know, that, that was the, the paradigm, that was the rule, and Rush goes national, and he's enormously successful. And he starts, you know, people are calling into his affiliate stations, first screaming, you know, what is this guy, get him off the air, but within like a week or two, it starts to become more mixed, and then it's, oh my God, he's the greatest thing ever. But he's getting, provoking reactions, and he is this amazing entertainer. He's doing things, the only thing that you can expect from Rush Limbaugh in those first few years in national syndication are to expect the unexpected. And, you know, he's not lecturing on the ills of communism. He's talking about gorbasms and how liberals and the mainstream media gorbasm every time anyone talks about Mikhail Gorbachev. Mm. He's talking about uh, he has wilderness updates where he plays Andy Williams' song Born Free overlaid with like mortar blasts and shotguns and squawking animals to sort of poke fun at animal rights And there's a conservative message in this, but it is fun. It's funny. It's brash. It's unpredictable. But a funny thing happens. You know, Limbaugh thinks he's there to entertain, and he starts getting these callers who are saying, thank God you're on the air, Rush. We finally have a voice, finally someone to stick up for us and speak up for us. 
And, you know, the radio executives, as it was explained to me by programmer or uh, executive after executive, are not the most creative uh, a bunch. And the one thing that they live in fear of is when they want to try something new, the, the first question from their boss is going to be, where is this working? Um, because, of course, if you're doing something that's working somewhere else, you, you can't get yourself in trouble trying it. And Rush uh, is getting these calls, and, and the light bulb goes off for some of these radio executives where they say, well, it's his viewpoint. It's his conservatism. So without talk radio, is there a Fox News channel? Because it's apparent to all how powerful Fox News channel is. Absolutely not. Rush is creating a programming model, and talk radio um, after Rush, you, you start to see a bunch of local mini-rushes, and then the early 90s, they start syndicating people like G. Gordon Liddy uh, of Watergate fame, uh, who went by the, the moniker The G-Man, yeah. or Michael Reagan, the presidential son, and then you, you get into the mid-90s, and, and I, I'll be very honest, I think the only person who totally understands or understood the relationship between Rush and Fox News would have been Roger Ailes, because from 1992 to 1996, Ailes was producing uh, Limbaugh's television show. And I, I would guess he's seeing the success Limbaugh's having on radio. He's seeing that there's a market for this. And he says, well, why, why can't we apply this to television? And Ailes is a guy who had been thinking about a conservative television network going back to the 70s. Right. Um, and the programming on Fox is exactly the same as the programming on talk radio. Right. So uh, now's the part where I challenge the thesis a little bit, which is to say, if we were to run an experiment, you have your dependent and independent variables. And it does seem to me that talk radio was around and going strong when Clinton was elected, when Barack Obama was elected. It also definitely helped the Tea Party. It has since, just because of legacy media and over-the-air versus digital media, has since declined in popularity at the exact time that you're pointing to it as this powerful force that gave us Donald Trump. So... If there, if there was a successful and important talk radio phenomenon going on for 20 years, why is it during the 2016 election that we could point to that format and say, aha, that's where it was most impactful and important? Well, I don't know that it's impactful in the moment in 2016 in that particular fashion. I think it's impactful in the moment in 2016 because – the, it's the first presidential election where in a general election, there are a lot of doubts about the Republican from the right mm -hmm. and talk radio hosts can sort of vouch for him. But I think that the impact is much longer and deeper in two different respects um, that sets the stage for Donald Trump. The first is that for decades by that point, by the time you get to 2016, you've heard Republican, you've heard talk radio first hawking Republicans, but criticizing them when they disagreed. They did it with George H.W. Bush. They did it with the Gingrichites and Bob Dole. They did it with George W. Bush. So they, they've been, hosts have been calling for this. They've been calling for a tougher Republican, someone who will just stand up to the Democrats and the liberals and fight back. We, we get to the primaries in 2015, and there are a lot of talk radio hosts who are mostly with Ted Cruz. Um, and there's questions, you know, is Donald Trump a conservative? You know, th this guy is not exactly the paradigmatic uh, Christian conservative that, that we think about. 
But what we don't know in that, what we don't see in that moment as clearly as maybe we should have is that he's employing the style that base boaters have been hungry for, that they're desperate for, that sounds like their favorite house. And those have also been doing another thing that ends up really critically boosting Donald Trump, which is they have been running down what Rush calls the drive-by media. They have for decades been focused on media bias. So then we get to 2016 and the media starts to report on the unsavory side of Donald Trump, how he's treated employees, how his businesses have gone belly up, some of the things that he says. And when reporters go to the folks at his rallies and say, you know, doesn't this concern you? They say, well, I I don't believe this. This is just the mainstream media trying to run down this guy who's finally sticking up for our values. They want Hillary to win. So all of these factors sort of set the stage for Donald Trump or a Donald Trump-like figure. It's not so much that talk radio itself is so influential in 2016 and hosts are like, yeah, this Trump guy is the best thing since sliced bread. If anything, in a lot of cases, it's the listeners driving the hosts to support Donald Trump. It's this transformation of conservative thinking. It's this desire for a fighter. It's running down the mainstream media so that when they point things out about Donald Trump, uh, they they sort of have no impact. It's those kinds of factors. It also does seem to me that a major feature of the entire genre is a lack of accountability because, like you were saying, you got a tape from 1987. Well, if the New York Times wrote an article in 1987, it would be very easy to look it up and hold them to account. I would listen to, I listened to a lot of uh, right-wing radio, and there was a time when a mainstay of Hannity and Laura Ingram was just mocking people who were worried about SUVs and, and gas mileage. And then when there was a couple of gas shocks that totally dropped away from their routines and actually blaming uh, the Obama administration for the high price of gas. And this is this is why you don't want to drive an SUV. And it was totally ignored. And then they essentially did a 180 and it seemed like no one even noticed it. And without that, I wonder how well talk radio would be able to persist over all these years. Well, this is an outstanding point and one I don't get to make very often. But absolutely the hardest part about doing the research of this book, I started out, you know, thinking I was going to write about the 1990s primarily. You know, I'm a historian. We do better with the past than the present or the future. And I was going to write about um, the the 94 Republican Revolution. I was going to write about the government shutdown in 95. I was going to write about impeachment. Well, what I quickly realized is there's virtually no recordings of anyone, not even Rush from that era. You know, C-SPAN did a talk radio week here or there, but very little of it is available. You know, you can't just sit down and say, well, I want to hear Rush's first national show, August 1st, 1988. But what, what you've seen throughout the years is when talk radio hosts cross over to an audience that is not their own, they run themselves into trouble. So for a lot of time in like the 90s and the first half of the 2000s, these guys were saying a lot of things that might have gotten them drummed off the airwaves if it went beyond their own audience. But they're kind of insulated because at the time, if you aren't tuning in, you aren't going to hear them. There was no media matters. There was no monitoring. There was no internet streaming. It was literally the people who tuned in on the AM dial were the ones who heard them. You know, I had people who worked in the, the first Bush White House say to me, you know, we didn't, we're not quite, we, we didn't get this. We were slow to get this in part because, you know, if we couldn't get the radio reception in the White House to hear it, we had to go out to try, try to seek this out. But then you <laughs> get to the point where Media Matters <laughs> takes off. And Media Matters, um, you know, starts tracking this stuff and they'll clip it. And now in the social media world, this is 
it's gotten a lot of these hosts in trouble because Media Matters clips something, it starts going viral on social media, and people start tweeting at the companies advertising on the show saying, my God, you know, do you, does your company stand for this? Now, one recent development in this world, this world that you chronicle, is that of the conservative talk radio hosts, most of them didn't start off pro-Trump, but then people might be shocked to find out that Mark Levin was an anti-Trump guy, I mean, the way he talks about him now, but they've since all uh, drunk the Kool-Aid, Glenn Beck, uh, to some extent, even Ben Shapiro. The exception was Joe Walsh, a Tea Party stalwart, who would you say has found the viable niche of being the one flame-throwing conservative who says, I'm still going to be anti-Trump? Is that, is that what explains Joe Walsh running for president now? So I wrote about this uh, in the Post um, today, and it, I, I think that is the cynical perspective on Joe Walsh, that Joe Walsh has decided that, look, you can't be anti-Trump or say anything even mildly critical about Trump and succeed in conservative media anymore. You've seen it happen to guy after guy after guy. Charlie Sykes, Michael Medved lost his syndication deal um, with Salem. He's still out there, but he's no longer a Salem host. Um, ben Shapiro lost his and, and Elisha Krauss were partners on, on Salem's L.A. station and they lost their talk radio gig. And, you know, so the cynical side of this is, you know, Walsh understands that you can't be critical of this guy and succeed in conservative media. But you can be liberal media's favorite conservative because you're, you're bashing Trump and that, you know, he knows he's not going to win and there's an avenue for this. The less cynical side is that he really was one of those people who had an epiphany and said, my God, I helped create Donald Trump and look how unfit he is for office. And now somebody's got to try and do something about it. It's a long shot, but I'm going to try. Um, now, I, I don't think Joe Walsh is an actual threat to Donald Trump. Um, I think he's only able to run because he he embodied the the style of talk radio, and he you know got this prominence. Otherwise, he he's just a one term congressman from Illinois who nobody's ever heard of. But he got this national platform uh, on the radio, and he's been able to build a brand. And so he has some you know name recognition because he he's taken advantage of the style. But, you know, the bottom line is for the Republican primary voter, if their choices are Donald Trump, the guy who embodies the style and shamelessly kind of sticks with it no matter how much criticism he gets, or Joe Walsh, the actual talk radio host, but the guy who said, you know, mea culpa, you know, some, some of the stuff I've said is wrong and I shouldn't have said it and I didn't believe it. And, you know, maybe this is, there's some danger in doing it this way. They're not taking that guy over Trump. Brian Rosenwald is, among other things, by the way, the co-editor-in-chief of Made by History in the Washington Post. And if you love Slate Podcasts, he is the main whistle-stop researcher on John Dickerson's Whistle Stop Podcast. His new book is called Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. Brian, thanks so much. My pleasure. Great to be with you. Happy to do it anytime. And now the spiel. The storms are coming, and the president is golfing. Uh-huh. Today, the president teeing up at his golf course outside Washington. 
as Hurricane Dorian battered the Bahamas and bore down on the U.S. Bored down. Well, at least something associated with Trump is boring. CNN went on to note. Critics reminding him of this promise he once made to supporters. I'm going to be working for you. I'm not going to have time to go play golf. Well, as the walk-up music that began the clip suggests, we were not all ready for this. But here's the thing. I do not care. I do not care that Trump played golf while an extremely slow-moving hurricane was two to three days away. Because what was Trump supposed to do? You know what he wanted to do? He wanted to nuke the hurricane, to take us to Huracan 1. Though because DEFCON severity works inversely to the Saffir Simpson scale of hurricanes, this means that the Huracan level is a 1 to 5 scale, with 3 being the most severe. But seriously, Trump, I mean, if the guy weren't golfing, he'd be scrambling the fighters. Either way, we get bogeys. Am I right? And a timeout for me, and I'm back. Now, you heard on CNN there, they were making the case, in the guise of quoting critics, <laughs> them, the hypocrisy of Trump, that Trump is a hypocrite for going golfing in the face of a hurricane. Golfing! Can you imagine that? With a hurricane only, say, 72 hours away, which, let's be honest, is the limit of Trump's long-term thinking. But that's not the hypocrisy. It's not hypocritical hurricane golfing. It's hypocritical anytime golfing. And according to TrumpGolfCount.com, Trump has golfed, not just visited a course, but confirmedly golfed 149 times so far during his presidency. For context, President Obama played golf only 113 times during the entirety of his first term in office. That according to presidentialgolfcounter.com. According to Mike Reads Names of Ridiculous Websites.com, Mike has read the name of two ridiculous websites in this segment. Three, if you count the following Chris Saliza article on CNN.com. Ooh, burn! Saliza sizzle! Quote, as Dorian grew into a Category 5 hurricane over Labor Day weekend, President Donald Trump played golf twice. The most common critique of Trump's decision to hit the links was focused on the obvious hypocrisy. And yes, there is that. But at this point in his presidency and his life, Trump's hypocrisy is so well proven as to be almost mundane. He believes he is governed by different rules than literally everyone else. This is bad. It is also not new. What is more striking and damaging as it relates to the overall health of the country is that Trump's golfing weekend speaks to how he simply does not see the presidency as a beacon of moral leadership or leadership of any kind. End Saliza quote. Remember that point he was making a paragraph ago about hypocrisy, but dismissing the hypocrisy as bad, but also not new. And then he goes on to say that Trump doesn't see the presidency as a beacon of moral leadership. And yet this observation somehow escapes the bit about it being bad, but also not new. They're both exactly the same. They're, they're both bad. They're also not new. And I got to say, of all the bad stuff Trump does, which is almost all the stuff Trump does, golfing over Labor Day isn't, well, it's not just really far down the list. It's not on the list. It's not bad. It's not bad at all. It doesn't matter. During hurricanes, governors are wont to don the gubernatorial fleece or the statehouse windbreaker and act all in charge as they monitor the same sources we can all see on Twitter. Is that what we demand? Does that help anyone? Do you want to see Donald Trump in a fleece? Do you want Donald Trump 
rather than the professionals at FEMA or the state emergency agencies calling any of the shots here? If so, there would be a citizen test for evacuees. Not only should we take solace in Donald Trump's uninvolvement in really anything that's important in our country, but hurricanes are a specific occurrence that are reacted to in a mostly apolitical way by our government. Competence is prized over partisanship, and the public does pay attention, and they mostly get right what kind of job is being done. They're mostly sympathetic to people who are stranded by the government in the face of hurricanes. The applicable agencies are so much better equipped to handle things than the titular figurehead, no matter what the title embroidered on the fleece says. So normally, I would also note that it is important for presidents to find some way to relax, to decompress, to recharge, so they can come at their job with their full faculties. Only I can't figure out how any of the verbs in that last clause apply to our permanently enraged but never focused president. Now in all this, there's a more serious critique, deeper than the media just going overboard on the president in this one instance. Also, by the way, on the I am the chosen one, that too unfair critique. Who cares? A few years ago, three years ago specifically, as I think about it, I sensed that we were all involved in a kind of correction of the knee-jerk media code enforcement of old. So in the old days, you know, when I was a little bit younger, the media reflecting public sentiment, but also shaping public sentiment, probably lagging a little, the vanguard of public sentiment, acted as a hectoring chorus in the face of supposed political transgressions. They were often, in my opinion, overly censorious. For instance, for a politician being gay, that was ipso facto a scandal. Ever having smoked pot in college? Ooh, gotta ask that. That's really important to know. And those began to fall away. And the emphasis on policy, better policy, real policy, began to march on. Policy began to be judged a little bit more sensibly. Yes, the tabloid press was still a part of the press, but we weren't so much lurching from scandal to scandal. That had been replaced during the Obama years, maybe even during the Bush years, by a bit more perspective. We were a little more concerned with the long-term effects of, say, income distribution rather than just the latest unemployment numbers or tax cuts. More work was being done in the media to consider, say, the overall Pentagon budget, rather than giving into one or two dominant stories that flashed up about an expensive hammer or a pricey toilet seat. Here's an example. If you look at the number of national news stories about overall homicide trends in the 2000s and 2010s versus the individual stories about individual murders in the 1960s and 1970s, I think you would see some progress, some media progress in terms of looking at the important things, looking at the big picture. And I would say now that's almost all out the window. It's like we were painstakingly restoring a car doesn't all happen at once, takes a lot of time, don't always get the restoration right. But as we were in the media painstakingly restoring this car, the Trump presidency represented a rabid ferret getting loose in the engine. Our project has been interrupted. And so we are faced with this dumb critique of presidential golfing in keeping with this dumb moment that our dumb president has foisted upon us. Now, If you want to say, Mike, doesn't this mean in a way that you are blaming Trump 
for unfairly being blamed? Maybe it does. And is that right? I don't know. I can't keep my head straight. I haven't gotten in a solid 18 holes since Isidore. And that's it for today's show. PRB Anime and Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. Hurricane Pierre is a Category 3 with wind speeds up to 125. And Hurricane Daniel has been downgraded to a tropical storm, which is so dispiriting he just may fall into a tropical depression. Do you know what it's like to laugh? Do you really know? Well, if not, come to the live Gist comedy special Monday, September 16th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Tickets for cheap 20 bucks are on sale at Slate.com slash live. The Gist We've not seen this kind of unfair criticism of a president since Gerald Ford played jarts as Hurricane Eloise beset Fort Walton Beach. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.